Susan Powell, a devoted wife and mother of two, suddenly goes missing in December of 2009. All of the evidence points to her husband, but he insists he is innocent, and he is never arrested. We explore this dark case in this week's episode. Welcome, welcome, welcome into another episode of the KMH Podcast. This is your buddy Brad, as always. I hope you are all doing well and wonderful and feel loving and giving and just super overall. Before we get into this case, I want to warn folks that this one is a little nastier than our typical episode. We discuss domestic abuse and touch on some sexual crimes. As always, Nothing graphic at all, but I don't want anybody to be unpleasantly surprised as they listen to this episode. So, we begin with Susan Cox. She met and fell in love with Joshua Powell in November of 2000 during a dinner party at his Tacoma, Washington apartment. They were classmates at a Latter-day Saints Institute of Religion course. They began a relationship, and in April of 2001, after being together for less than six months, they decided to get married. Following the wedding, the pair lived with Joshua's father, Stephen Powell, in South Hill, Washington. Stephen had an odd obsession with Susan. He would follow her around the house recording her and other stuff. His recordings of her weren't always known to Susan. Uh, He would even leave the house to follow her to continue his video diaries. He would snoop through her private journals while she was gone. Daddy Stephen would also do a few more mischievous things like write her love songs online under a pseudonym, steal her dirty underwear, and um, watch her in the bathroom with a small mirror. Apparently, there were over 4,500 photos of Susan found on Stephen's computer. And all of this is without Susan's knowledge, of course, other than the in-your-face camcorder moments. Some of his home movies have been released on YouTube, if you're curious. They give you the shivers. In 2003, after deciding the heart wants what it wants... Stephen confessed his love to his daughter-in-law, Susan. Sadly for Stephen, Susan did not share the same feelings. Some might say she was disgusted, offended, creeped out. Use your favorite adjective here. Susan insisted they find a house of their own after that, and she and Joshua moved out shortly thereafter, all the way to a suburb of Salt Lake City, Utah. Now... During an interview with ABC News, Stephen claimed it was actually Susan who is the aggressive one. Susan was uh, very, very sexual with me. She was very flirtatious. I mean, I'm I'm her father-in-law, and uh, she she would do a lot of things that that um, I mean, she was just she did it. I did. I mean, we we interacted in a lot of sexual ways because Susan enjoys doing that. Liar. Liar! All right, pardon me, that's not very professional of me. But he's a liar! When they arrived in Salt Lake City, uh, Susan, who, even though she's trained as a cosmetologist, 
managed to get a job with Wells Fargo Investments and was essentially a de facto stockbroker from them. Joshua, who is actually trained in business with a bachelor's degree, worked a variety of odd jobs. The couple had two sons after they moved, Charles, who was born in 2005, and Braden, born in 2007. Now, the couple's marriage was not one born of fairy tales and storybooks. Susan's friends noticed that Joshua was a little bit controlling and, you know, would, would treat himself with some expensive gifts from time to time. Well, that's not totally fair. Susan's friends actually said Joshua was extremely controlling, and his spending was so bad the couple had to declare bankruptcy in 2007 with over $200,000 of debt, almost all of it. Joshua's. Uh, in fact, it may be fair to say all of it, not almost all of it. Now, Joshua also did crappy things like undermine Susan by saying things to the kids like, oh, mommy's so mean whenever she would discipline them. Or right after Susan would put the kids down to bed, Joshua would say, what are you doing in bed? Let's get up and play. If my wife did that, I would murder her because there's nothing more difficult in this world than putting boys down to bed. Susan's journals would illuminate their issues even further. She was exceptionally displeased with Joshua's refusal to attend church services with the family. She was also upset that Joshua continued to maintain a really close relationship with his father, even after that creepy declaration of love he made to Susan. In July of 2008, Susan secretly recorded a survey of their property at the advice of her attorney to highlight the damage that Stephen had done to the house to show the extent of the property that they own, things along those lines. And in these videos, she expressed her dissatisfaction with her marriage. Uh, this is me, July 29th, 2008. It is 12.33, mountain time, um, covering all my bases, making sure that if something happens to me or my family or all of us, that our assets are documented. Ugh, right? You never want to hear somebody say, if something happens to me. Most telling of all, at least to me, is Susan went so far as to create a secret will, which stated that there was extreme turmoil in their marriage and, quote, if I die, it may not be an accident, even if it looks like one. Apparently, in a cover on this will, there were explicit instructions that Joshua was never to look at it. She claimed to friends that Joshua had warned her that if she ever filed for divorce, there'd be no lawyers involved, no judges. He would simply destroy her life, and their children would grow up without a mom and dad. Again, that's that's just chilling and awful to hear. I mean, poor Susan went from living with a father-in-law who was basically a live-in stalker to now being, quote, on her own and living with a husband who made her fear for her life. And on December 6, 2009, Susan and her two boys attended church services without Joshua. A neighbor visited that afternoon and left around 5 p.m., the next day, Joshua's mother, Tarika, gets contacted by the kids' daycare because the children were never dropped off and they couldn't get in touch with either Joshua or Susan. Also, neither Joshua nor Susan showed up for work that day. Worried, Tarika went to the house 
with Joshua's sister, Jennifer. They weren't able to get anyone to answer the door, and no one would pick up their cell phone. So, fearing the worst, they called the police. When the police arrived, they decided to break into the house to do a welfare check on the family. Uh, The house was empty, but they found Susan's purse, her wallet, and her ID in the house. Her cell phone was also found in the family's minivan. The only real oddity police noticed was there's a big wet spot on the couch, and someone had set up a couple of box fans to dry it out. Joshua returned home around 5 o'clock that day with the two boys. He told police he had taken the boys, who at this time were two and four, out camping at Simpson Springs in western Utah after Susan went to bed. Now this is December in Utah, and they're going out into the desert. The temperatures were well below freezing that night. And since the evidence indicated Susan didn't go to bed till around midnight, they could not have arrived at their alleged campsite until sometime around 2 or 2.30. Now, police searched for the campsite that Joshua claimed they were at, but never found it. And when questioned why he wasn't at work or didn't call in to work, Joshua said he thought the day was Sunday, not Monday, because he's not real good with time. Why take your two young sons camping? after midnight, freezing cold temperatures. Well, we just go out and do things that are fun. But it's after midnight. You know, shouldn't your sons be sleeping? Weren't they sleeping? People who know me know that time is hard for me to keep track of. I tend to be spontaneous. I do things in the spur of the moment. Why not call work the next morning to say, hey, I was out camping, I'm not going to be in today. To be honest, Saturday was a blur. I was convinced it was still Saturday. As you might expect, police were obviously becoming suspicious of Joshua and his less than stellar and unconvincing stories about what happened that day. Now I want to stop here and kind of cover Joshua's upbringing to give us some context that I think is useful. As you probably could guess, Joshua had a strange upbringing. His parents had a very tense relationship because Stephen, his father, wasn't really down with the LDS lifestyle while his mother was very religious. Now, Tarika's mom, which would be Stephen's mother-in-law and Joshua's grandmother, described Stephen as very, quote, Anti-church, anti-country, anti-authority, anti-morality, very radical. Stephen, who we've already got an impression of being kind of a perv, wasn't above sharing pornography with his children while they were kids. Stephen impressed his less-than-progressive view on the role of women in life upon his two boys. Tarika said that Stephen intentionally tried to turn the kids against her. Stephen claimed he had a right to take on a second wife and actively pursued at least one woman who was already married. Stephen also wasn't big on rules and discipline. Um, There were two instances that stood out in my research. Once when Joshua intentionally killed his sister's gerbils and once when he chased his mother with a butcher's knife. 
And Stephen didn't really see the need to discipline him in either situation. You know, he just chalked that up to typical kid stuff. Now, that being said, Stephen would have his moments where he would become a sadistic drill sergeant, and he would harshly punish the kids for even the smallest of offenses. And for some reason, Joshua was always the preferred target of Stephen's outbursts. Meanwhile, Stephen accused Tarika of mixing her Mormon beliefs with a certain style of New Age mysticism and claimed she was practicing witchcraft and devil worshipping. Tarika claimed, though, that it was Stephen who actually collected occult books. And apparently, based on these two conflicting statements, they do agree on one thing. There was at least a small occult library kept in the house. Likely because he grew up in the childhood version of Mad Max's Thunderdome, Joshua suffered from some significant health issues that began manifesting when he was a teenager. He actually attempted to take his life when he was around 13 or 14. A psychiatrist indicated that he might lack certain morals or logic based on the environment he grew up in. Tarika flat out stated she believed Joshua did not know the limits of what was acceptable normal behavior. By 1998, Joshua was attending the University of Washington in Seattle. Go Huskies. And he met his first true love, Catherine Everett. The two met at a local LDS ward, and a ward apparently is a larger than normal church. The two moved into an apartment together, at which point a switch flipped in Joshua's attitude. Catherine said Joshua became very possessive and controlling and refused to allow her to go anywhere unless he could go too. This included visiting her family. Catherine eventually had to sneak out of Washington and go back to Utah without Joshua's knowledge and broke up with him over the phone. She smartly decided to never return to Seattle again. It's worth mentioning too that and this is probably to no one's surprise who's listening, Stephen was arrested in 2011 for possessing child pornography and voyeurism. He was found guilty on those latter charges and actually served jail time. He was released from prison in 2017 and died shortly thereafter. All right, let's mosey on back to this investigation, back to December 2009. So, the police really began their search in earnest on December 9th, and it began with the Powell's house. They immediately found traces of blood on the floor, a newish life insurance policy that had been taken out on Susan for $1 million. I think the policy was issued maybe in June or July of this year. And a handwritten letter from Susan kind of hidden away, expressing fear for her life. The blood found on the floor was an an analyzed and later confirmed to be Susan's blood mixed with the blood of an unknown male. That wet spot on the couch police initially saw, yeah, that wasn't water. That was a pool of Susan's blood. And police made sure to document that there were no signs of a burglary or any sort of attempted forced entry into the house. So this investigation is not off to a good start for Joshua. Now, while all this is going on and the police are waiting for lab reports to come back and all that mess, Josh did what any grieving husband would do and immediately liquidated all of Susan's retirement accounts, canceled all of her regular doctor's appointments, and withdrew his children from daycare. 
and we did we're talking about he did this in a matter of a few days. Joshua also sold his car to a wrecking yard. When police learned about this, they hunted down which wrecking yard, found it, found that Joshua's car was still in one piece, and took some sniffer dogs there who hit on the fact that there was probably a body in the trunk at some point in time. In interviewing Joshua's co-workers, they noted that there was a recent discussion in the office of an episode of CSI, and Joshua made the comment that all these criminals are so stupid they never hide the body in the right spot, and that if he ever had to hide a body, he would take it to one of the abandoned, unsable mine shafts in western Utah, so no one would be comfortable exploring it to try to find the body. Police spoke with the four-year-old, Charlie, and he said that his mommy had gone camping with them, but she decided to stay in the woods rather than coming home that day. Police also spoke with Stephen, who made the odd statement that, quote, he did not assist or orchestrate any activity with his son, Joshua Pyle, related to the disappearance for Susan Marie Powell. Joshua's interview with the police, as you imagine, didn't go swimmingly. It was noted that he seemed exceptionally nervous, but was not at, oh, he wasn't overly concerned about where Susan was or where they might find her body. At one point while being babysat, one of the children made the statement to Susan's mom that when they went camping that night, mommy rode in the trunk of the car. Now, police hired expert geologists to help them explore some of the mines near the area where Joshua said the family had gotten camping. These experts, I think there were two of them, but those two men managed to explore hundreds of abandoned mines without any success. But they also noted in the report that Police were looking at somewhere between five and 10,000 abandoned mines in the area, virtually all of which would be dangerous to search for a non-expert because of the variety of hazards they could present. Now, despite all of this evidence, Joshua was never arrested by police. On December 14th, Joshua decided to hire an attorney and he became increasingly uncooperative with police. He then moved back to his father's house with his two boys around Christmas, and on January 6, 2010, officially moved all their belongings out of the Utah house. Shortly thereafter, the website susanpow.org was launched, purportedly as a tool for helping find Susan. However, the anonymous moderator spent more time defending Joshua's reputation and running a smear campaign against both Susan's family and the LDS Church than posting any sort of meaningful leads or information. These anonymous moderators speculated that Susan had run off to Brazil with a journalist who went missing the same week as Susan. Later posts claimed that Susan suffered from severe mental illnesses. Many people believed or practically knew that it was Joshua or his family that had set up the site and were running it in an effort to defer, deter finding Susan's body. 
Joshua also made statements to the press about Susan's mental health, and he even offered one of her journals as proof that she was not well and looking to leave him for another man. Joshua repeated these mental health concerns during his ABC News interview. She has rocked out the front door in her underwear, started walking down the street. However, it was discovered that this journal that Joshua had released to the press purportedly expressing love for other men and struggles she was facing. It was a journal she kept during high school. After this came out, Susan's family successfully petitioned the court for an injunction preventing Joshua or anyone from publishing any of Susan's journals or other private documents to the media. Now, when Stephen was arrested for those voyeurism charges in 2011, a Washington court awarded custody of the two boys to Susan's parents because Joshua refused to move them out of Stephen's house, despite being ordered to. Eventually, Joshua obtained a house of his own and regained custody of his boys. But there were many claims that Joshua never spent the night in that house. It was rented as a front purely to comply with the court order to say he had a house where his children were living away from Stephen. Now, authorities continued to monitor Joshua as they went through their investigation through social workers as part of the juvenile court issues. Even once the kids were returned to Joshua, they still had to be monitored by social workers in the court. On February 5th, 2012, a social worker called the police when Joshua prevented her from visiting with the children. As she waited for police to arrive, the house they were in exploded into a flash fire. In investigating the scene, police found the boys and Joshua. All three were dead. The boys suffered wounds consistent of that from an axe or a hatchet. It was believed they were inflicted by Joshua in an effort to keep the boys from escaping the house. Two five-gallon drums of gasoline were found in the house, and it was determined that a significant amount of gasoline had been spread throughout the house as, a, as an accelerant. The official cause of death for all three was carbon monoxide poisoning. Police later learned that Joshua, in the days leading up to his death, had sent goodbye emails to close friends and family, he had donated all of his children's clothes and toys to a local charity, and he had withdrawn all the money from his bank accounts. Roughly a year later, Joshua's brother, Michael, committed suicide. He was living in Minneapolis and ended his life by jumping off the top of a tall parking garage. Michael had been questioned multiple times by police about Susan's disappearance and was considered a likely conspirator in the investigation. Apparently, these pressures caused him to take his own life. As of this recording, Susan is still officially missing. However, local law enforcement has closed their case. And I'm afraid we all know what unfortunate end Susan probably met. I've, uh, I've represented some amazingly crappy dudes in my days as a criminal defense attorney. Uh, but Joshua's kind of on his own level. He He's a disgusting coward. Just a total 
total coward. His brother Michael is a coward. And his father Stephen is probably the biggest coward and piece of crap in this entire story because he raised Joshua to believe these sorts of things that he was better than women, and that he had a right to control them. I don't know what Joshua's plan was here. He comes across as an idiot. I mean, what was he going to do? Apparently just dump Susan's body in a mine and hope nobody went looking? But, you know, a body isn't needed to prosecute someone for murder, and there was plenty of evidence to support an arrest and a prosecution here, in my opinion. We've got a giant pool of Susan's blood on the couch, Susan leaving these letters and videotapes virtually warning that something bad was going to happen to her. Joshua providing a laughably bad excuse for where he was the night Susan went missing. His kids are telling the police that Susan was with them when they went into the woods, but she never came out. I mean, look, frankly, if this dude came into my office to hire me to defend him and he told me this story... I think my first bit of advice for him would be he needs to bring his toothbrush to the next court hearing because his butt was going to be locked up in a cage for a long time. Um, You know, I I hate this case. I really do. It's just so sad. This absolute coward of a man abused and tortured his wife. He threatened her life just to keep her from leaving him. I mean, he owned her in his mind. She was a pet that he could treat or beat as needed to get her to act how he wanted when he went too far he killed not only himself but his boys he totally totally destroyed his world he blew it up so that nothing good was left behind for other people to enjoy he's just a sick disgusting monster joshua's father and brother are just as bad to me i fully believe they helped Joshua plan what to do, how to dispose of the body, um, and certainly help cover it up. Personally, I'm very disappointed the police didn't make an arrest. They did a good job with their investigation, but they had plenty of evidence to make an arrest. Uh, I think they were trying to find the body, so they had a totally airtight case. But there was more than enough information for them to secure an indictment here. And they should have done so to keep Stephen under wraps. Now, understand Joshua made things difficult for the police when he left Utah for Washington because then they'd have to get into how they're going to extradite him and all that. But those are issues that can be overcome. And it's just sad to know, looking back, that if they had been a little bit more aggressive in going after Joshua those two boys would probably still be alive. Now understand, I am not blaming the police at all for the boy's death. That was a sad and unexpected twist. I know the police and the detectives are torturing themselves over waiting so long. So please don't think that I am in any way faulting the police for what ultimately happened. I just don't understand why arresting Stephen didn't become a priority once he left Utah. So since there isn't really much to analyze in this case, I'm going to use this time to make this statement. Do not 
ever feel like you are trapped in a relationship. Even if you feel like your partner is too rich or too politically connected or, or too crazy and you can't take the risk of leaving, you are wrong. There are plenty of resources available to help. I promise. In the United States, there are organizations at the local level, at the state level, and at the national level that can help. The National Domestic Violence Hotline is a national organization devoted to helping people who are in bad situations like this. They can be reached at 1-800-799-7233. Again, it's 1-800-799-SAFE-7233. You can call your local police at any time. You can also call your local district attorney's office. Virtually all of the decent-sized prosecutorial offices have a domestic violence specialist that helps with these sorts of matters. Information on these things are kept confidential in every situation. Even if your partner is a cop or a prosecutor or someone you think would have access to this confidential information, then just simply go to a police station in another town or another county to make your report. They will help you. And even if you're being cynical and you want to say, there's not people out there that would help me. People don't just do nice things like this. Okay, fine. Understand this. These organizations, both the private ones and the government ones, get funding from the federal government to help further their mission. And their funding is determined based on how many people they help. So even if you think these people won't want to help you because you're not worth helping, fine, believe that. But they're going to make money off of you. So they will help you because they have a financial interest to do so. Now, why am I harping about domestic violence? Because Susan's a victim of domestic violence here, guys. No, there's no evidence she was ever hit, punched, shoved, anything like that. But she was stuck in a situation where her life was being threatened. She felt like she could not leave the house safely. She could not live her life safely. That is domestic violence under American law. You do not have to live this way. You should not allow your children to grow up in an environment like this. There are plenty of ways out, even if you can't see them in your present circumstance. I promise, look for help, it is there. Okay, this has been a heavy enough episode, right? I mean, again, we're normally not as dark, uh, but I felt like this was an important case to cover um, I hope that Susan's body is found one day, but I think it's very unlikely if this jackass threw her down a mining shaft. So, to help balance out all the dark clouds I'm bringing to you, we're going to get to our palate cleanser this week, and I'm going to allow Mr. Eli himself to present it to you. Hello, it is me again. Yes, yes, I will be reading the joke today. And today's joke is pretty funny. Pretty funny. What is a cat's favorite breakfast? Anyone? 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 Okay, it is 
Mice Krispies. Yes, yes, yes. Hilarious. I had to watch to find this joke because my mom was laughing at me too. I have no idea what, but she was just laughing at me. So yes, that was today's joke and there. Oh, you just gotta love that Eli, don't you? If if I ever started some sort of podcast production company, he'd be the first talent I sign. Okay, well that's gonna be all for this week. My call to action that all these smart people tell me I have to make. Let's do something different. Let's share this with a friend. And if they won't do it on their own, then what I want you to do is steal their phone, force them to subscribe to this podcast, maybe leave some incriminating evidence on your phone while you're there, and then sneak it back into their possession and tell them, look, I've done you a great favor. You've got an awesome podcast to listen to now. And if they still express some, if they still sound like they're not motivated to listen, that's when you can say, well, you may want to because there's some bad things the FBI may be interested in on your phone. I think that's, that's a fun idea, right? I mean, I'm not giving any advice, just, just a creative way to help us grow, which is what we all want. All right. Well, um, I hope, I don't want to say enjoy. I hope you found this episode interesting. And I hope you enjoyed the little mini-sode we dropped as a surprise on Friday. Uh, That was just a nice little bonus for everyone. I'll probably be doing it again in the future from time to time, so keep an eye out. I hope you all have a wonderful, wonderful week. And in the words of Tom Petty, it's time to move on, time to get going. Take care, y'all. Thank you for listening to Kellen Missing Hidden. Make sure to rate, subscribe, and share. Questions? Email us at info at kmhpodcast.com.